Jesus, you are our king. You are a good God. You love us, and you have told us what your will is. Thank you for the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand them and to act accordingly. I pray for your help now as I preach and pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, considering the return of Christ, the scripture is full of warnings. And God warns us because he actually loves us. It would not be a loving thing to give you no warning that something was coming and then it, and then it sprung upon you and you weren't ready for it. So the scripture is full of these warnings of things to come. Jesus does not want anyone to be caught unaware. And so he's saying, be ready at any time. I'm going to come back. I'm ruling now behind the scenes, but I'm going to come back. Be ready for that. And I want you to understand that Jesus doesn't just save you from something. He saves you for a purpose. And that purpose is to know him and to make him known throughout the world. And if you go to the Old Testament, you find God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt where they were slaves to go into the wilderness to be able to worship him. And it's a kind of a frightening thing to be in close proximity to God, a holy God. And so they had to learn how to interact with him. And his purpose was that he would be able to reveal himself to them and that they would become a holy nation, a light to all nations, so that others would look in and see the Israelites, see the things they cared about, how they worshiped, what they did, and they would give glory to their God and all nations would be drawn to him. And in the New Testament, the cross even more perfectly shows us how much God loves us. He saved you through the cross from sin and death and judgment into a new relationship with God so that you can know him. Jesus has revealed the Father to us so we can know what he cares about, what his will is, and therefore make him known to others. Jesus said, you'll be salt. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He wants other people to see our relationship with God and what it causes in us as we are transformed more and more into his likeness, they will see that and then they'll be drawn to him as well. So you were saved for a purpose and that purpose is to know God and to make him known. Now the lectionary puts two texts together that we just heard read. Ashley read the Amos one from the minor prophets and then Luke read from Matthew 25. And the reason those two scriptures are put together is because they both are dealing with the capital D day of the Lord the day when the Lord will come in power. And this was something that they were expecting in the Old Testament and even now we're expecting. Christ's first coming was a coming of the Lord, but there's even a greater and more glorious coming when he returns. And so the question I have is, will I be excited on that day? Lord, check out what's going on in our church, in my life. Look at where your kingdom is coming in. Look at all the good things that are happening. Or to quote one of our bishops um, from the old days, will I be caught staring at my loafers? You don't want to be caught staring at your loafers because you're ashamed of the weak life you've been living when you knew Christ had expectations for you. He saved you for a purpose. You didn't take the time to get to know him and then enact in your life the things he cares most about. So I asked the question to start off worship today, what would you like to be found doing? And of course, right away, we're sitting in church. We're like, yeah, come when, come when we're in church, Lord. That would be great. Don't come when I skip a Sunday to play golf. Don't come when I'm watching Netflix. Don't come when I'm doing laundry. Come when I'm doing something really religious, reading my Bible. Well, that's kind of bubbling up out of our inner Pharisee. 
And I don't think the specific thing matters as much as the whole picture of your life. What are the things that you are growing and building in your life? It's more of a holistic picture. A number of years ago, I read a, a fiction book written by a guy named Brian McLaren called A New Kind of Christian. It's just a narrative, but it does have a theology that comes with it. And in the story, there are two pastors. One is a pastor who's kind of in burnout. He's tired. He's worn out. He's not really doing a great job, and he's wondering if he's in the right profession. The other is actually a high school teacher, but when they become friends, he learns that the high school teacher was a pastor and for some reason failed in his ministry and left the ministry and then ended up divorced. So he's a divorced high school teacher. But strangely enough, he's got a lot of holiness in his life. And it happens in the story that this high school teacher has to leave the country for a long period, and he leans out to his new friend, this other pastor, and says, I need you to look after my affairs. And, get, and he has a key to his apartment, and he's like, I want you to pay my bills and manage my finances. I'm going to be gone for a while. And as he starts doing this, he realizes things like, this guy's living on a teacher's salary, but he's giving away 50% of all of his income. He's only living on half of that teacher's salary. And he's got missionaries in multiple places in the world that he has a personal correspondence and friendship with and visits every year. And he's doing all these things that don't look like, he ex like the, the pastor expected. Hence the title of the book, A New Kind of Christian. It was a holistic picture of this guy's life where his, his, in various aspects of his life, God's kingdom was coming in each one and he was working on it. It was a powerful narrative because we can understand that. We can get the picture of the two pastors and the one being a teacher, but I want to be more like that. I want to be found to be a person who's doing more and more of that stuff in my life. Imagine a child for a minute grabbing mom or dad's hand and saying, come on, come on, let me show you what I did. Come into my room. Look at this. All my clothes are folded and put into the drawers. Look at my shoes. They're all organized in the closet. All my toys are in the bin. And look at the books. They're all back on the shelf. And my bed's made. Do you think that child is doing it because he really loves having a neat room? I've got a couple of kids, and usually that's not the case. The reason they're doing it is because they know mom and dad want that to happen, that mom and dad want order in their bedroom, and they did the thing they knew mom and dad wanted, so they were proud to show it. They took them by the hand and said, come on, look at this. Now, imagine Jesus coming, and you could take him by the hand and say, come on, look at this, Lord. I know you know all things, but let me just show you for my sake. Look at what's going on over in this part of my life. Look at what's going on in this part of my life. Look at what's going on over here. Your will is being done in these places. Now, it's not completed and it's not perfected, but I know what you care about, God, and I'm trying to do those things. We know what he's going to look for when he comes because he's, he's told us. Now, I'm going to connect these two texts, and I'm going to go to Amos first. Amos is called a minor prophet, but not because of the content, just because it's a shorter writing. He's, he's put not chronologically in order, but in terms of the size. And Isaiah, for instance, is much bigger, much more voluminous uh, as, a, as a book. And Amos is in the minor prophet section, but actually came chronologically before Isaiah. He was prophesying before the days of Isaiah. Isaiah came on the end of that. And we've just spent eight weeks this summer in Daniel. And so you got to change for a minute. Go back 200 years before Daniel. That's where we are. In Daniel, Babylon was in power, and it was the southern kingdom of Judah around Jerusalem that was left for Israel, and they got exiled. This is 200 years earlier. The Assyrians are the powerhouse up to the northeast, and the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom 
So the northern kingdom got called Israel. The southern kingdom got called Judah when God's people were divided. So both are thriving. In this time when Amos writes, there is great abundance and prosperity. They've had 40 years of expanding their military borders. The northern kingdom pushed all the way up to Damascus and into Syria. The southern kingdom pushed down to the Gaza Strip and some parts over the Jordan River. They basically built back, the Jews built back up their geographic territory to look like it did in the days of Solomon, when Solomon was was doing great things. The danger with this is they confused abundance with favor. And as a church leader, every time I get the finance reports and I see how strong our church is doing, I'm very excited. In COVID, despite COVID, the church is very strong. We have a lot of abundance. We're doing well. But I, I don't for a minute think, oh, that's a sign God is happy with me. It might be. It might not. And so I have to ask, what would make God happy? What would please him? What would we want to be doing with abundance? How did we get the abundance? What is it for? All these kind of questions. And what Amos does is he comes with the best kind of satire. He uses stark images and poetry to highlight the failings of the people that he's criticizing, his own people. And he's saying, you think you've had 40 years of abundance because you're doing well, and you're wanting the day of the Lord to come. You're thinking this is the first of what's going to become global, that God is going to bring his kingdom, he's going to set the Israelites up at the top of it, and he's going to put all your enemies to shame. Meanwhile, Assyria is reloading. They had expended their military on some bad campaigns and got weakened, and they had a turnover of leadership, and they have a new guy who's come into power, a guy with an awesome name, Tigliath Piliezer III. My Old Testament prof called him Tiggy for short. He was a pretty good military leader. And in 722 AD or BC, he's going to bust right through the northern kingdom, wipe them out, exile a bunch of their people because he wanted the trade route down to Egypt. He made it all the way through the northern kingdom. And this was part of God's judgment on them. And they were celebrating abundance. And they were like, yay, we want the day of the Lord. And in Amos 5.18, he says this, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? And then he gives these graphic images. It's like escaping from a lion only to run into a bear. It's like fleeing into your house and thinking you're safe and then putting your hand on the wall where there's a poisonous snake that bites you. You think it's going to be a day of light. It's going to be a day of darkness. And then he says, look at your worship. I hate your worship. He actually uses those words in verse uh, 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies your offerings, your grain offerings, your fattened animals. I will not even look at them. I don't listen to the noise of your songs. Their worship was disconnected from their witness. They might have known about God, but they weren't working in the land to bring justice and righteousness. And so what he says is this, and this is quotable. I mean, hang this on your refrigerator. You've heard it before. But let justice roll down like waters. It's very poetic. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, go up onto the hill of the Lord, know him, see what he's like, and then let his character roll down everywhere, flow like a river. Let it go out into your community, into your house, into your workplace, into your government, everywhere. We want justice and righteousness, but not the kind of justice that's about individual rights, the kind of justice and righteousness that is the reflection of God's very character and nature. God is good. He's true. He's right. To look at God is to see what justice and righteousness look like. He wants that character reflected in your life everywhere. 
So you get to know him so that then you can make him known. So that you would know what Jesus cares about, what he wants to see happen. God, what is justice and righteousness looking like in my workplace? What does it look like in my family? What does it look like in my local government? What does it look like in these places? That's the question. Let it roll down from knowing God that we then can make him known. The second text here from Matthew 25 is now Jesus talking. This is, we're in the New Testament now. The lectionary connected these two because it's also talking about the day of the Lord. And it's a weird parable. We don't get it. It's about these 10 virgins with their lamps and there's a bridegroom and five of them don't have oil and they get locked out and he says, I never knew you. And you know it ends bad, but you don't understand why. It just seems cruel. Well, keep in mind, we're in the Western culture where we care about individual rights. They're in an Eastern or Middle Eastern culture that cares about honor and shame. Family is everything and the honor of the family is everything. So when we have a marriage, the husband and the wife make all the decisions, and they get married, and maybe they include the parents' opinions. Maybe. There, it was two families marrying two families, and the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom would negotiate the bride price, the dowry, and the gifts that were given. And in an honor-shame society, they actually haggle back and forth. It's like if you've ever been in an open market in a not-Western culture— Part of the negotiating on the price of the thing you're trying, trying to buy is about developing the relationship with the merchant. It's not about the price. It's not about value. It's about having a business relationship with this person and getting to know them. And so they would oftentimes barter back and forth. Well, she, isn't she great? She's great. You should, you should give more. More gifts. She's great. Well, didn't he choose well? He's very wise to choose such a great wife. And they go back and forth and they're building a family relationship. And this happened at the groom's house. And once they arrived at how the families are going to come together, then there was, um, they went over to the bride's house where the bride's maids were waiting and they did the ceremony there, the exchange of vows there. And then there was a procession through the town to back to the groom's house where the big party was. And you guys sent my family to Israel a couple summers ago, and we actually saw a procession. It was, it was a procession for a bar mitzvah, and it was incredible. It was in the daytime. The wedding ones were always at night, but they had a, four posts of like a tent over the, the boy that was going to have his bar mitzvah. They had a flute and some kind of other instrument, and there was somebody playing a drum, and there was a big gaggle of people, and they, they marched right through the holy city all the way up to the western wall where he would read the scroll and be bar mitzvah, and it was like everybody backed out of the way and started applauding, and it was this incredible procession because it was about the whole village. And see, the thing with the 10 bridesmaids is they were the younger women who all were looking ahead to their wedding day. And this woman was being married, and the procession through the town was actually the bridal procession. It was not walk down an aisle. It was walk from your house where you just made vows to the groom's house where you're going to have a party that will go for multiple days, and it's for the whole town to see it, and it's at night. And they hadn't invented electricity yet, and so they had torches. Picture sticks with a cloth wrapped around them, dunked in oil and set on fire. You burn for about five minutes, and then you got to trim it again with more and dunk it again and keep going. But they could barter back and forth for a long time before this procession would start. So they're all asleep, but five of them completely dishonored the whole process. It wasn't forgetfulness. It wasn't, oh, I thought I had more gas in the tank. It was, they just didn't care. Give us some of your oil. And they say no, not because they're mean or stingy, because they want to honor the bride and groom and they know they need enough oil to get from her house to his house. 
And if we split it, we're going to have light for the first half, and then they're all going to go out halfway through, and it will ruin their wedding. We're not going to do that. And so when they go off to buy oil, they miss the whole thing, and they bang on the door, and he says, I never knew you. Not that he didn't know who they were. He recognized them. He said, you dishonored me. You didn't do what I cared about. You didn't care about the things that matter to me. I'm not going to open my door. You don't get to come to the feast. Unless we miss the point, Jesus says this in verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be ready. He's coming. Be ready. Now, one of the things I love about our church is that it's so good at worship that then goes into witness, knowing God and then making him known. We have a mission of the week every Sunday just about. And that's not just to give information. That's to mobilize you to bring righteousness and justice by God's character out into the world, to care for those in need, to care for the poor. We'll hear today about uh, rescuing food to save the hungry. There's a mission kiosk back there so that your life will get engaged in the work that God wants to have done. And it's not about what you're actually doing when he shows up, whether it's doing the laundry or reading your Bible or in church. It's about the whole lifestyle that you're building. What is your life about? Do you know what God cares about? And are you doing those things? You know, we have people doing all sorts of things. We have people feeding the hungry. We have people visiting prisons. We have people that go and work with the homeless. We have people that care for teen moms. We have people that are in politics. They're bringing God's justice and righteousness into local government. We have people that are in their workplace trying to be good bosses and good employees for the glory of God. We have people that are in that phase of having young kids at home, and they're trying to impart God's character to their kids. They're reading the Bible with them. They're having morning and evening prayer. They're doing all this stuff. I could keep going with a whole litany of other things that our people are doing. But there's great joy in the wedding feast for the people that are doing these kind of things. You want to grab the Lord by the hand and say, come with me, Lord. Let me show you what I've been working on with such pride instead of staring at your loafers. And let me close with just a simple illustration. I grew up in a, in a family where my mom loved a garden. She had a vegetable garden. She had flower gardens. She had landscaping. She was always all summer working on it. And sad when winter would come and the garden was done. It was in Pennsylvania. So there was snow and it would just look dead. And then in the spring, it would grow again. Well, being a homeowner down here, I now have a yard. I've got to care for it. But I've actually started to enjoy working in our yard. And I've, I'm not growing vegetables, but I'm planting plants. And I think in good places. And I'm starting to see them thrive. And when every time my mom comes over, I say, hey, let's take a walk around the yard. Because I know she cares about it. And I say things like, look at the cassia this year. It's so yellow. It's exploding with growth. Or look, we just planted a tea olive next to the bedroom window because when it blooms, we're going to open the window and it's going to smell sweet. Or the jasmine's growing up now over the porch. Or this thing I planted here, it's not going well. I don't know what to do. What do you think? It's a delight for me because I know she cares about it. And I'm proud of it. And so that's a very small picture of, come along with me and let me show you something that I've been working on that I know matters to you. That's what the day of the Lord is about. And just like a garden, it's always in progress. And so none of us will have it complete. None of us are going to be sitting with our feet up going, I've, I've finished all the work you've given me to do. I've just been waiting for you, Jesus. I'm kind of bored. No, no, there's work to be done. Be in progress with that work. You were saved for a purpose, not just from something, but for something. And that purpose is to know him and to make him known. So let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for this call 
I'm grateful for the, the sending you give us out of worship to go and bring righteousness and justice in our world. I pray for each one of us that you would speak about what to do in light of your scriptures today. What would you have us do? I recognize it's different for each one of us, but you speak to us. Lord, you guide us. You're a good shepherd. Show us what to do so we can be proud of the life that we're building, that we can do the things that you care about. Help us to know you so we can make you known. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen.